That smooth Christian jazz you're hearing means you've tuned in to Same Old Song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm your co-host, Aaron Zimmerman. I'll be joined by Jacob Smith as each week we break down the lectionary readings for the upcoming Sunday to give you something to think about, and if you're a preacher, to give you something to preach about, and no matter who you are, to give you a connection to the never-changing message of God's grace for actual people like you. Unzip that monogrammed faux leather Bible carrying case and cover, pull up a chair, and let's dig in. Well, Jake, I am still on sabbatical. You are not. How does it feel to be slaving away another day, another dollar, working in the mines, while here I am? poolside daiquiri in hand well you know it's good you know it's good to to, (laughs) i'm actually you know you and i were born to be clergy there's nothing else we could do and um and uh so i was you know was out of sight not out of sight out of mind but absence has made the heart grow fonder and so it's good to be back in the saddle i've only been back in the saddle for about a week but um it's good to be back and um and uh and although I am envious of that delicious daiquiri you seem to be drinking, so uh, poolside uh-huh. there and, and the actually I've just got a and... flask of a flask of water and uh, we I'm in I'm in North Carolina, listeners, if you care, uh, at uh, my my dad's place and uh, just yeah finishing out the last little bit of sabbatical. So I've I've lifted the cone of silence. Mm. Uh, my daughter asked me, isn't it? like not sabbatically to record a podcast and i said no but i love jake so much yeah that's right it's just like it's fun it's a good time so, to catch up and talk about the lectionary <laughs> talk about the lord yeah, yeah let's so do here it. we are so, we are back and i mean gosh these are muscles we haven't exercised for a little bit although it seems like a continuous string for you dear listener but uh we are um here we're on the 18th, we're on proper 18, and uh, our readings for the day are Proverbs 22, verses 1 through 2, 8 through 9, and 22 through 23, just so you get all the good pieces of advice. And then we come to uh, Aaron and I's favorite epistle, James chapter 2, verses mm-hmm. 1 through 10, 11 through 13, and 14 to 17, and finally, Mark chapter 7, 24 to 37. Uh, dear listener and dear preacher, there is a lot that you can take from these passages today. But remember, it's Labor Day also, Labor Day weekend, and so uh, just like Aaron won't be in church, neither may be a lot of your congregation. So uh, you may want to keep your sermon uh, short, but we'll give you the nuggets to preach. So we come to Proverbs, and what are you thinking about? What, what are you thinking about Proverbs there, Aaron? Well, you know, we're in this section of wisdom literature in in the scriptures and uh, these are classic passages that people like to cherry pick mm-hmm. and needle point them onto little pillows uh, these are the kind of uh, things that you will find you know when you go into church bathrooms and there's a poster on the wall <laughs> a framed Christian poster usually shows a waterfall a stream maybe a sunset and it'll have these kinds of you know, wisdom for living type verses from the Proverbs on them. Mm. And uh, so, you know, then that's that's kind of what we have. This a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches and favor is better than silver or gold. And this is like all the Proverbs, good advice. And it's used to, you know, usually 
lecture somebody to care about their reputation and and you know make sure they have a good name and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and then you know yes, it's good to know that whoever sows injustice will reap calamity. Uh, that those who are generous are blessed. Uh, yes, all all good things. And and it shows here that the that the Lord does care about the poor. Um, and that God is a God of justice and, and hates injustice. So all that is kind of true and good. Um, but the one thing about Proverbs is that it is a beautiful and perfect distillation of the law. It in, of its, in and of itself does not get people to change their behavior. And we'll see that as we go through. I have a Remember that, listener, because I'm going to talk about it again when we get to the, to the gospel reading. And we'll talk about it in James as well. That the Bible is a word of two words. Uh, it's a book of two words. It's the law, which is good, holy, and perfect. And it's also the gospel. Proverbs is mostly law, and it's going to be accurate. But again, the law doesn't have the power to produce what it demands. So if you use this Proverbs text and just use it to make your congregation feel ashamed because they're not doing enough for the poor or they're they've let they don't care enough about their name and their reputation or they're not generous enough you will not get the result you want so to the extent that you talk about these true things acknowledge their truth but then also acknowledge our utter failure to kind of keep up with it and uh and and take it to the cross Mm. that's what i think about proverbs 22. Yeah, and I think just uh, specifically this, you know, I mean, this is, like you said, this is a distillation of the law. This is a perfect description of uh, who we should be and uh, who our Lord actually is, you know. And so when you look at these, you always want to tie it into the gospel somehow, you know. This is, I mean, if you were just going to focus on Proverbs, but I mean, you know, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. And, uh, you know, and you have been given the good name of Jesus, uh, and uh, the rich and the poor have this in common. The Lord is, these are like fortune cookie kind of sayings. This reminds me of fortune cookie, you know. The rich and the poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all in bed. But, uh, you know, but... Uh, the, uh, but <laughs> hey, wait, wait, I have to explain to our listeners. There may be some people who were homeschooled and didn't learn the in bed trick with the fortune cookies. Yeah. So there's this kind of like, if you went to... Um, you know, yeah. Anyways, when you go to a Chinese restaurant and you get a fortune cookie, the sort of funny, uh, like middle school joke at the end of the thing is like everybody read their fortune cookie and you add the words in bed to the end of it and it's really funny. You know, a missionary actually taught me that little. Absolutely. Joke, so. um, I think I learned it at a focus retreat. But anyway, uh, <laughs> the rich and the poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. Indeed, and that's why both the rich and the poor need mercy. And then we have a Lord who, um, I mean, so it's a justice, but it's actually an injustice that the righteous died for the unrighteous, and he reaped calamity, and indeed the rod of anger fell upon him instead of you and me. And, uh, you know, he is a generous one, and he shares the bread that is his body with all of us poor souls. And, I mean, it just goes on and on. So when you look at the book of Proverbs, um, preach the law, but indeed also give them the description of the one who's lived this perfectly, Jesus. And uh, that's a great way. Uh, for you to understand Proverbs and also to understand James. And um, anything else you want to say on Proverbs there, Aaron? Well, I think it, it is good for Christians to be reminded yeah. of the fact that God cares about the poor and that, um, it, and as as uh, I think it's Jürgen Moltmann who talks about a preferential uh kind of a, a preferential option for the poor. God has this special, see, in contrast to the world, actually feels very um, 
has a special love mm-hmm. for for people who are poor. And by the way, this is not some romanticized, uh, you know, idyllic view of those poor people. Like you know what you hear when um, white American teenagers go on mission trips to Central America and they come back and they say, "Those people are so poor, but so full of joy. They have nothing, and yet they're they live life like every day has meaning." Um, you know, that's the classic, classic totally. thing. And with no knowledge that they're happy because like every week a new group of Christian teenagers is coming through and like giving them stuff, uh, and, and repairing their well again. So, um, the, uh, the, this is the poor people are not like perfect poor people. They're not like, like poor people like rich people are, you know, people. Yeah. And that is to say terrible and also wonderful. Mm-hmm. And um, but God seems to have this special thing for poor people, and and that thing, by the way, the crush don't crush the afflicted at the gate. The gate was the place where it was kind of the, it was the like uh, Judge Judy. This yeah. is, this is the, yeah the judges would sit at the gate of these walled towns, and that's where you would go for um, it's like small claims court or whatever. So if you had a, a landlord that was uh, treating you poorly as a tenant, that's where you would go to settle the thing. And and so crushing the afflicted at the gate is when poor people come with their claim and because they can't bribe anybody, they don't get the result that is just, uh, whereas the rich people go to the gate and because they can bribe people, they get things going their way. So anyway, so we have a judge, we have a judge who who judges justly and here's the cause of the poor, which includes you and I, you know I mean? Yep. So I think that's, that is a great way to look at the book of Proverbs. And let's move on now to the New Testament, what's often seen as the New Testament kind of analog to the uh, Proverbs, the book of James, which is like a book of lots of kind of advice and good sayings and things you should do, uh, famously called by Martin Luther, an epistle of straw, not his favorite. Well, he later came around to call it the epistle of law. And so, you yeah, know. Which is, which is, and, which that's, is. and so it's written by James, uh, known in church tradition as the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. And also the, uh, he lived in Jerusalem and served the church there for a long time and is seen as um, uh, someone who was kind of writing against some, not against St. Paul, but against some of the twisting of St. Paul's teaching. You know, St. Paul emphasized yeah. grace and this mercy of God for sinners uh, and that the law won't save you, but what Jesus Christ has done will save you. And so, and there were people then as now that used it as a excuse to just be uh, knuckleheads. And so James kind of comes back and, uh, and is trying to deal with that dynamic. And I think that's an important thing. And I'm not quite sure if we talked about this in the last episode, but it bears repeating regardless, but uh, you know, hermeneutically James and Paul are not on the same, same level. You don't interpret St. Paul through James. You interpret James through St. Paul. Because in the Amen. book of Acts, uh, James agrees with St. Paul at the Council of Jerusalem. And, uh, right. and so and this will uh, give you actually a real insight into how to interpret uh, verses 14 through 17. Um, because uh, faith without works, uh, like it is not a pit, it's not to be pitted against St. Paul here when you actually hermeneutically are reading the lens through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. And so, rather, this begins to make sense, and you begin to see that James actually, um, as an epistle of law, also becomes like a drug. The Spirit uses it as a driving force to draw you to the cross where your salvation is found. And so, for example, if I was going to, uh, if we're going to preach on this particular passage, I would not cut out 11 through 13. That is really... um, 
that is really where it's at. Actually, um, I would begin actually uh, slightly before that where James says, you do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. How's that working for you all the time, <laughs> you know? But if you show right. partial, I mean, because that's the level, that's what James is talking about. He's not talking about just a couple of days a week when, you know, you're doing your part at the soup kitchen and serving the poor, you know, and, you know, um, I love when people come to me on Thanksgiving. We do, we used to do this big meal and, you know, and people were like, you know, I just want to come and do my part. And I was like, well, why don't you come next Thursday? <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Like when, when no volunteers show up. And so, but he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, I mean, I'm guilty of that. I, maybe you are, Aaron, I don't know. But, uh, you know, if you commit sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. Um, so basically, forever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. This is the big thing. What he is saying here is that God shows no partiality and neither should you, but we do show partiality. So what you and I need is not more advice, but what you and I need ultimately is mercy. And, uh, and the good thing about the mercy that is given to you in Jesus is that when James and Proverbs is preached alone without the gospel, what happens is this compartmentalization happens. You and I have been both in small groups and in, you know, uh, you know accountability groups where nobody is really honest. You know what I mean? We're putting... Redemption yeah, groups. whatever they're called. Uh, you know, um, uh, we're, you know, when people are like, so what's going on with you? Well, my problem is I'm not really doing quiet times all the time. You know, I'm doing basically okay, but my roommate's cousin's sister who lives in Seattle is really having a hard time. We compartmentalize things when James or Proverbs doesn't drive you to the cross. Yeah, so I think... For judgment here without is dealing... mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs That's always right. over judgment. And, you know, one of the things that I think this passage reveals also is the fact that Christians still sin. Mm -hmm. uh, because the fact that James has to write this letter to Christians about, for example, favoritism shows that they have gone back to basic uh, Roman social norms. So... Before the gospel and most human societies, you have a really strict hierarchy. And not just like there's a boss and then like employees or a king and subjects, but there's actually different kinds of people who have different levels of value. Mm -hmm. A rich, noble person is actually worth more and has value as a human being. And a poor person, uh, God forbid, a poor woman has less value as a human being. There was no... Um, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are yeah. created equal. And like that's a Christian idea. That is clearly a Christian idea, and one that was hasn't even been fully realized in this country yet either. Right, and so the gospel comes in, and one of the most amazing things, kind of building on the way Jesus treated people in the early church, you have this kind of rich and poor being together. But because human beings are sinners, and as um, as Christians, you are saved, and yet the old Adam who was drowned in baptism, as Luther said, he is a mighty good swimmer. Mm. And so um, we have this um, uh, simul justus et peccator, simultaneously justified in a sinner, one of these great insights, which is in the scripture and seen here in the book of James. The fact that James has to write this shows that people who know that we're all equal, that we're all kind of we're on level ground at the foot of the cross, they are clearly in their churches doing this thing where a rich guy comes in uh, just decked out in um, 
you know, he's got Gucci loafers. His name is R.J. Heyman. And he comes in and they say, would you like to here? Please sit up front. And then, uh, you know, the other people, poor folks, uh, you know, please sit in the back. Um, that's clearly going on. Just like in the old days, you had pew rent. People would rent their pews. So the rich people sat up front and the poor people sat in the back. As I was, uh, you know, just on this sabbatical trip and every church I went to, these old churches in big ancient cities, uh, they always had like a special box just for the royal family or the nobles or, or whatnot. Um, which, so Christians have been doing this and falling back into this for a long time. So all that to say is people still do terrible things. They were doing it back then. And this is why James has to bring this up uh, and point it out. And and he says, um, and, and as you said, Jake, like the real idea is to show that um, just because you haven't murdered anyone or you haven't committed adultery, you are still breaking the law. You can't take one part of the law and say, you know, this is the part that matters mm-hmm. and the rest of it, I can do whatever I want. He says, no, like if you break one part, you break the whole thing. Verse 10 in this passage. Uh, and so the, the answer to that is, is mercy, to receive mercy. Mm-hmm. That as we show mercy, we receive mercy. And then at the end here, this verse that's used uh, to kind of clobber grace people like you and me, um, faith by itself without works is dead, verse 17. Um, that's, Can uh, faith save you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it can. It does. And I think he's drawing a distinction between, um, uh, I think, like actual, so actual saving faith versus just kind of this lip service or kind of this, narcissistic uh, non-faith. What, I don't know what to I mean, call I it. Think, but. I mean, so the, so the convicted person by the earlier, so you hear this front part, verses 1 through 13, and you should be brought to a place where you're like, ah, oh, crap. You know what I mean? And so, um, can faith save you? Yes. Um, and he's like, so faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Absolutely. Because any work without faith is dead. Um, anything apart from Jesus is sin and is wretched. Your good works, so well, I have good works, but I don't, I don't have faith. I mean, what's the point? You know, you see quickly how you enter into that dichotomy, and that's deadly. Uh, you know what I mean? So, I mean, and that is one of the problems oftentimes with like American Christianity, whether it be blue or red, is that it lowers Jesus to an example. And then, you know, and if Jesus, and you see this in, in mainline traditions, you know what I mean? The lower your view of the atonement, uh, typically the lower your view of Jesus kind of plays, begin, you know, it's like a, it's like a scale. And so the less your need for Jesus. And so all of a sudden, Jesus just becomes an example of many. And the whole thing becomes about works. And then all of a sudden, we're on a ladder climbing to heaven. But anything done apart from Jesus is a work, and that is a death. And so yeah. what you and I need first is to be, as the law says, brought us to a point of conviction where then we enter to a place of confession. I am a guy who shows partiality. I'm a guy who has favorites. Uh, Forgive me, Lord. You know what I mean? I got angry thoughts all the time. Forgive me, Lord. Save me. And then we uh, we hear the voice of the Lord say through the gospel and through the scriptures, man, who is there to condemn you? Then neither do I condemn you. And then uh, with our trust in him, we are put forward. Our desires have changed. Uh, Things have happened. But this isn't like a once and done kind of thing. 
This is a constant process in life, as you said, as the old Adam dies, until ultimately we die with him uh, in the ground, literally, and are raised on the last day. Yeah, I think, you know, in some ways, James uh, and Paul throughout the scriptures are trying to um, hold faith and works together mm-hmm. and to say that um, you are saved by faith and that saving faith produces works. And Paul talks about that, like the fruit of the spirit, and it just comes naturally from the Christian uh, who in whose heart the Holy Spirit dwells. And um, I think... Uh, I think your point at the beginning about how you got to interpret James through Paul, I'd also say you have to interpret James through Jesus yeah. and you have to see the whole kind of message, the whole, all of scripture holding together here, because you look at how Jesus, Jesus talks to lots of people who have an amazing spiritual resume and are getting, uh, just accomplishing great works in a sense. Um, and he's often very critical of them because they don't have faith and their works have caused them to trust in themselves uh, or they trust in their works. So um, James is kind of speaking against a, a kind of a distortion of the gospel where somebody says, I have faith in Jesus, and but really all I care, like it's some sort of lip service or there's, there's some, yeah. there's, there's not an authenticity to it. And he's saying, you know, a, a, someone who, who has realized his or her sin and realized his or her poverty, poverty, and uh, and is um, moved by that. That 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 there's a response in love to other people, not a perfect response. And again, I think Jake, you're great to say it. like this is a lifelong process. These are complex things. It's not faith versus works or whatever. They are both held together. Um, and uh, uh, yeah. and I think you know you have to keep in mind that he, as Saint Paul says, he who began the work in you will bring it through to completion, as he says in Ephesians, uh, and uh, and he's working it out in us. Well, this is what it means, as St. Paul says, as good pastors, to handle the word of truth rightly. You know, you um, you properly make the distinction between law and gospel, and this uh, happens in preaching, but it also happens in pastoral care. And indeed, uh, you preach the law to the comfortable and uh, grace to the afflicted. You know, I'll never forget, um, you know, I know a I know a buddy who is a pastor of a church, and he had a young guy in the congregation who was, um, you know, uh, hanging out with a number of ladies um, in his church, and all of a sudden it came around, and these ladies were devastated, and he went and confronted the guy and was like, what are you doing? And he was like, man, I thought you were a grace guy. And he was like, I am a grace guy, but this has nothing to do with that. This has to do with your neighbor, you know what I mean? And you are, like, hurting, you've hurt these women. And uh, you know, and and uh, and that's what it is. This is this is the this is the thing that Saint James is speaking against. Where people are like, "Yeah, man, you know, I'm a grace guy. Do whatever." You know, no, no, no. Here's how it works. The word of truth is handled together by making the proper distinction between law and gospel, and knowing how to preach that and knowing how to use it in the pastorate is uh, what real ministry is all about. Because there, Christ is seen clearly. And I think, you know, so for both the Proverbs and the James passage, and this ties into Mark as well, um, the goal is to preach the law, which is holy, good, and true, um, 
cause your congregation to see that the, the way they fall short of that, and you yourself fall short of it, and to bring them to the gospel. Even James, it, there's passages in the scriptures where James, and you know, it says Jesus' brother and sister and mother came to him, and they thought he was out of his mind, and they tried to get him to stop his ministry. Uh, obviously, James himself has made mistakes and has to repent and kind of come to realization of the truth. So again, I think the, I, the you want to preach the law, and then you want to preach the gospel, and, and note that James was a recipient of that grace, just like Amen. you and I are. Amen. And you can go see his tomb at um, the um, Armenian uh, cathedral in um, the, um, the Arab quarter of Jerusalem. So now we come to Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 37. And uh, this is one of those passages where it is important to make the distinction between law and gospel. And uh, we hear so often when people preach this text because it's about the Syrophoenician woman um, and uh, about a guy um, who's blind, who's being healed, but specifically the Syrophoenician woman. There are so many people today, especially in light of our current context, CPR, um, COVID politics and race relations, that do not know how to handle this text. And so, uh, Aaron, in your uh, experience, how has this uh, text not been rightly handled in the past? Well, Jake, I'm glad you asked. I'll tell you that um, it's uh, it's often seen as these days. Yeah. Um, so Jesus is in a Gentile region, uh, and he is approached by a woman who's not Jewish, and she's also obviously a woman. So there's she's a Gentile, and then Mark here kind of underlines it and says of Syrophoenician origin. So she's more uh, than a woman. She's she's like a Canaanite. Not only is it, so a woman, bad strike one. Gentile strike two. Syrophoenician strike even three. Worse. So this even worse. So Canaanite. These are like the ancient enemies of the Jewish people, and yet she comes to Jesus and wants her daughter, who has a demon, uh, to be freed from that demon. And Jesus has this very harsh thing. Uh, you know, one of these awkward, the difficult teachings of Jesus. Uh, and he says to her, let the children be fed first. It's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. In which Jesus is essentially saying, I'm here to feed the children of Israel, the good guys, not the bad guys, Syrophoenicians, because uh, you're a dog, lady. Um, and uh, the lady responds, incredibly, sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. By the way, this is where if you're in an Episcopal church that uses the prayer of humble access, where we say in that prayer, we're not worthy of so much as to uh, gather up the crumbs under your table, that's where this comes from. And that's her response. Um, and so how this is often used today, because um, Jesus then sees her faith and and heals um, the daughter, exercises the demon. Um, and so this is seen as Jesus is a little bit racist and misogynist and... Um, uh, xenophobic, and the woman teaches Jesus how to be nicer, and so then he turns, he he's nice, and then he heals her daughter. I'm just going to say so that is an awful, that, awful, awful interpretation. Right, because Jesus, well, <laughs> if if one holds to what the church has taught for 2,000 years, is without sin, uh, and that he um, actually is the incarnate Son of God, and therefore loves all created beings, um, and loves this woman and does not see her as some less than Gentile Syrophoenician. Uh, and what he's doing here in verse 27 
uh, when he says, let the children be fed first, it's not fair to take the children's th- food and throw it to the dogs. He is giving voice to what everybody around Jesus is thinking. So the disciples are there, and they are outraged and offended that this Gentile Syrophoenician woman has come asking for help. They are thinking, it's not right to feed them. So he's kind of giving voice to what they're thinking, the little cartoon thought bubbles above their heads, to which they say, ah, good, Jesus is, um, finally, he's like Holding getting with the program. Yeah, he's like, you know, finally, good, set some good boundaries, Jesus. Um, and, um, and, and, but he's doing this because he knows the woman's heart. We see many examples in scripture where Jesus clearly knows what's inside her, her person's heart and mind. And, um, and so he allows his disciples to see this incredible faithful response from this woman. Um, and, uh, uh, in in Ma- so Matthew also records this very famous story, and in that story Jesus is is uh, recorded as saying, uh, "How you know great is your faith," and so what Jesus wants the disciples to see is that their view uh, of children versus dogs is wrong, and that the people that the disciples think are beyond <laughs> God's grace, the dogs of the world that the disciples think don't deserve God's mercy and love. Those people are absolutely worthy of God's love, are loved by God, are seen by God, are forgiven. And Jesus uh, shows them that and how he responds by healing daughter. And actually, uh, this leads one to the opposite conclusion as well, that uh, anyone who thinks that they're basically okay, and that they have, and this is Bo Geertz's point in his commentary in this passage, and those who think that they're basically okay, and as John the Baptist said, we have Abraham as our father. Are left out. You know, this we're good. Is, we're fine. Is, we're on the home team. We're winners. This is a very powerful thing. Now, it's important if you want to preach this whole thing in its context. So Jesus heals by this woman by speaking a word, and now there. Remember, it's a Syrophoenician woman. It's a Syrophoenician woman, and so this is Mark. One of the things that Mark is teaching us here is that the gospel is going out. It is the word is going out, and those who for centuries were treated as Gentile dogs, are now experiencing the love and kindness of God. And so this is why Mark, when he carries on into the next section, uh, they, are in, uh, uh, they, are, uh, they are in Sidon, and they're in the region of the Decapolis. This is, these are not Jewish names. They are in uh, Gentile territory here. So here, once again, is the word is going out and so when it is going out to people who don't deserve it. But Jesus heals in a very specific way here. There's a man uh, who comes and he's, he didn't ask. It just says that they brought him a deaf man who had an impediment in his speech. And so, uh, and Jesus heals him by, um, by uh, you know, basically um, he takes him aside in private. He puts his fingers into his ears and then he spits and touches the guy's tongue. So this is a different way. And one of the ways that I would like kind of uh, preach on this particular passage is that um, Jesus never heals the same way, especially in Mark's gospel. He's always healing in different ways, either by speaking or by touching or rubbing mud somewhere. Um, You know, and this is because he knows that we as the disciples, one, we think we're in because we're basically cool. You know, we're Episcopalians and so we're God's favorite. And then the other thing is, is that he thinks, we, he knows that we would worship a method. Just think about how many church growth books you've bought in the last, like, 10 years, preacher. 
how many, like you're looking for a method. My wife is in charge of story makers and people are always looking like, so, but I mean, how do you really do it? And, you know, and that's the powerful thing about these things is that it's not about the method. It's about the one behind the method. It's about the giver of the gift. And this is the one who does all things well and uh, enters into our lives, those, who do, those of us who don't deserve it, and heals us with his word. Yeah, I, and I think it's, again, it's important to note that there are many times, like, that Jesus heals not only without physical touch, but without even being in the same place, as in right before this with the demon-possessed daughter of the Syrophoenician woman. He's not even physically near her. Mm-hmm. He just says, the demon has left your daughter. It's happened just because I've said it. Uh, and so there's something here, I wonder, because they come and they, it says that they begged him to lay his hand on him. They, they actually, couldn't to them, speak. it was important. It was important to have physical touch um, and uh, to them. And so Jesus, in a pastoral oh. impulse, uh, uh, does this healing with That's physical touch. Answer. But he doesn't need to. Yeah, well, you know, uh, Jesus is, uh, you know, he meets people where they are. And so, and the thing, too, here, Jesus wants to do this in secret. There's so much here about him uh, wanting to be uh, private uh, and not let people see it. Even in the, the beginning of this passage, he entered a house in Tyre uh, and didn't want anyone to know he was there. And just like here, when this man comes, they want him to heal him and Jesus brings him in private to do it. And this goes back to my point at the very beginning that if if you treat Proverbs or James as just things that you can lecture your congregation and they will do them, look at how <laughs> the people respond to Jesus's simple request to just not talk about this miracle. In verse 36, Jesus ordered them to tell no one, just like you maybe have ordered your congregation to do something. Now, maybe you didn't order them. You used language in the pulpit like, so, Get your brothers and sisters, by October 15th. <laughs> may we be people who <laughs> demonstrate, you know, the, let the us, may we, let or us. let us, let us go, like if you end a sermon, basically you're ending your sermon with the law, you're ending your sermon with application, and really it's a nice preacher, spiritual, fake piety way to just tell people to get their act together. Uh, but if Jesus couldn't do it, neither can you. That's right. The law does not produce what it demands. So Mercy does. With the gospel. Mercy does. Um, and uh, make sure your sermon ends with directing people to the gospel the, 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 and to Jesus Christ, the one who truly shows no partiality and uh, forgives all who come to him. Amen. Well, that's a great place. It's good to see you, Aaron. And uh, Likewise. listeners, it's, uh, thank you for listening. And remember, you are God's favorite. Somebody's looking. Somebody cares. Somebody Thanks for listening to Same Old Song. Hope you found some gospel nuggets for the pulpit or for your life. If you like what you heard, leave a review or rating in Apple Podcasts. Dave Zoll will be sad if you don't. Thanks to TJ Hester for audio production. And remember to keep that Bible by your bedside, ready to rock and roll.